guess I would work really hard to get the permit to exhume whatever's underneath the parking deck. Side note. Awesome waterbed. Yeah, for real. In this episode of The Brothers Grimm, Jeremy discusses the strange disappearance of the Springfield Three. So I've got a pretty awesome story for us uh, in this episode. Um, it's set in 1992. Now, I think I'm probably the only one of us who really remembers what the early 90s were like. Yeah, I was six months old. I mean, I was four or maybe five. Yeah, so the, the I mean, in my opinion, the 90s were the greatest decade. I know some would say the 80s, but the 90s. Uh, but we definitely had uh, a technology problem. Um, you know, we still rocked VHS cassette tapes. Um, still you know, had the Walkman. Still I, had I the wouldn't Walkman. call that a problem. I'd call that a, a renaissance. I mean, this is very true. There's nothing you know. like analog tape, man. I was talking with my daughter the other night, and she didn't understand that you had to uh, rewind tapes when you're done with them. <laughs> she just did not understand it. Or flip it over. And and so and you if you compare it to right now, the technology of today, you know, everything is digital. Everybody leaves some sort of footprint, uh, whether you're, you know, online exclusively to do social media or you're working, you know, everything that you have, your phone, your laptop, you know, your watch, everything, digital footprint. So it's really hard to disappear. Yep. Everything's a bunch of ones and zeros. That's right. Even this podcast is probably tracking you. <laughs> but in, in the early 90s, we didn't have all that. No, the internet was still new. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember being in high school and having dial-up connection. I mean, bing, ding, 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 ding. Yeah, it's the it's the sound that separates a generation. You've got mail, AOL, baby. So, the story that I bring you tonight uh, is called the Springfield Three, and it, it's a story of a, an up and vanished, just disappearance of three women. So, on June sixth, nineteen ninety two. Susie Streeter and Stacy McCall graduated from Kickapoo High School in Springfield, Missouri. They went out for a night of celebrations, as one would when we graduate high school. It's a beautiful time. The plan was to stop by several house parties and spend the night at their friend Janelle Kirby's house. But when they finally arrived at Janelle's house around 2 a.m., the house was just too overcrowded. The house party was too big. And then, without knowing, they altered their fates irrevocably. They decided to go back to Susie's house and sleep there. Nobody ever saw them again. The following morning, June 7th, Janelle Kirby and her boyfriend waited for Susie and Stacy. They had all planned to go together to a water park. When the girls didn't show up at Janelle's house, she and her boyfriend went to pick them up. They arrived at Susie's house around 8 a.m. Three vehicles were parked outside belonging to Susie, Stacy, and Susie's mother, Cheryl. The glass lamp on the porch was broken and the door was unlocked. Janelle and her boyfriend went inside. The purses of all three women were lined up in the living room at the foot of the steps leading into Susie's bedroom. The dog, a Yorkshire Terrier named Cinnamon, was locked in the bathroom 
but Cheryl, Susie, and Stacy were nowhere to be seen. While they were in the house, the phone rang. Janelle answered. A strange male voice on the other end started making sexual innuendos. She hung up. Soon the phone rang again. It was the same voice. Janelle hung up again. Her boyfriend, meanwhile, innocently cleaned up the broken glass on the porch. After that, they left. Several hours later, Stacy's mother, Janice, who had been getting increasingly worried, went to the house herself. She hadn't been able to reach Stacy by phone and knew she had decided to spend the night at Susie's. She went inside and also noticed all three purses on the living room floor. She looked in the other rooms and she recognized her daughter's clothes neatly folded on her sandals by Susie's waterbed. Side note, awesome waterbed. Yeah, for real. Waterbed. I remember our buddy Eric, who we've had on the podcast, had a waterbed for a while growing up. Yeah, he did. I always wanted one when I was a kid. I always wanted one, too. It was so awesome. She also noticed that Cheryl and Susie, both chain smokers, had left their cigarettes in the house. So, just to recap, Stacy and Susie decided to leave Janelle's house that night because it was too crowded and decided to go back and spend the night at Susie's. Janelle and her boyfriend come over that morning, decide not to call the cops when they realize that all three cars are there, all three purses are there, and no one's in the house. And he cleaned up glass on the porch. Amateur move. You don't clean up glass yes, on a on- porch. The only evidence of any sort of possible fourth century. She answers the phone, takes two crank calls from a guy, doesn't report it. They leave. Janice, Stacy's mother, comes over. Same thing. Nobody's in the house. All three cars are there. Purses are there. And she realizes that they left their cigarettes. And the clothes were neatly folded. That's strange. Yes. So, Janice, unlike Janelle, does the right thing. She knew something was wrong. She called the police in a panic. When she hung up, she noticed a light blinking on the answering machine. Someone had left a message. She played it and later described it as strange, but couldn't remember more because the answering machine had automatically erased the message after it was played once. Now, I was only eight in the early 90s, but I don't remember answering machines just randomly deleting messages after you listen to them once. No, no, you have to physically delete them. I mean, I remember enough growing up that, like, you had to delete the message. That's what I thought. I I do have a question, though, and maybe it's not important, but what type of sexual innuendos were the crank caller making? Were they, like, just, like, sexual noises or, like, um, you know, inappropriate comments? Like, what, what are we talking about? Those were not in the research that I had as to what the calls were exactly, uh, the content of them. I would imagine innuendo being the word, being sexual noises, like you would crank call somebody when you're young and you, you know. So the police were called in after Janice had visited the house and immediately were baffled by the case. There was no sign of force entry. 
and the two girls had all the appearances that they had gotten ready for bed. There were damp washcloths on the bathroom floor where they had removed their makeup, and their jewelry was left on the wash basin. In their purses left behind, police found wallets, IDs, car keys, and money. Plus, the dog was in the house, locked in the bathroom. Nothing apart from the three women was missing. Was the front door locked or unlocked? It was unlocked. Not ajar, but just unlocked. Just, un- just unlocked. Mm-hmm. And where was the glass from? The light on the front porch, which could have happened then, could have happened days before. The television was turned on, and Cheryl's bed had appeared to have been slept in. Her eyeglasses were on the nightstand next to a turned-over book. The blinds in Susie's room were pulled apart as if somebody was looking outside, as if you would when you wake up in the morning. An untouched graduation cake was sitting in the fridge. The officers started collecting evidence. Soon, though, it became clear that they had begun their investigation too late. By that point, over 16 hours after the disappearance. Worried friends and family had been coming to the house somewhere between 10 and 20 people, possibly tainting the crime scene. Also, the message on the answering machine had been lost, and the broken glass from the porch lamp, the single possible sign of forced entry, had been swept up and thrown in the trash. The police recovered all the evidence they could, but had no idea whether anything crucial had vanished in the meantime. So they started interviewing people. The neighbors hadn't heard anything different that night, and the last person to hear from Cheryl was a friend. Cheryl had called her on the night of her disappearance at 11.15 p.m. and told her how she was painting a chest of drawers. She gave no indication that anything was wrong. From that point, every trail picked up by the police went cold. Their first suspect was Susie's ex-boyfriend. He had been arrested for robbing graves, and Susie was allegedly going to testify against him. First off, robbing graves, that's a creepy thing to be accused of. Very. However, the police quickly ruled him out as a suspect. They also looked into Bart Streeter, Cheryl's son and Susie's brother. He was also ruled out. Where was he? That did not say it, just said that they ruled him out as a suspect or person of interest. I don't think that he lived with them. I would be curious if he was at the party and maybe he left after they left. Maybe. But that is strange to not mention either his uh, whereabouts or whether he was home or like where was he if Janelle and her boyfriend didn't didn't find him the next morning. They began investigating the strange phone calls. The only official statement is that the two prank calls that Janelle answered were unrelated to the strange message that was later inadvertently erased by Janice. But no further information about these calls has been released. Over the years, many people have claimed to have leads on the case. In 1993, a man called Stephen Eugene Garrison was arrested on a weapons charge and claimed to know where the three women are buried as part of a plea bargain. This this is three years after. Yeah, uh, one year after. One year after. He said a friend had drunkenly admitted to murdering them. Garrison supposedly had details about the case that were not released to the public. He led the police to a farm. No bodies were found. Robert Fox, convicted for kidnapping and robbery in Texas and a suspect in a Florida murder, 
claimed in 1997, so five years after the disappearance, to know what had happened to the three women. He was in Springfield during the time of their disappearance, but an alibi arose when questioned by police. So two claimed to have information, neither pan out. What was the information that he had? All he said was that he had information. He was interviewed and brought before a grand jury. They decided not to indict him. And he still maintained to know what happened, but said he'd only reveal everything after his mother dies. So here's one that I don't really uh, believe all the way. In 2007, a web sleuth by the name of Ken claimed to have had a psychic encounter with the spirit of Stacy. She had told him that the bodies are buried under the parking garage of the Cox South Hospital, only 10 minutes away from Cheryl and Susie's house. The location was scanned with a ground-penetrating radar. A mechanical engineer who performed the scanning said that he identified three anomalies consistent with the gravesite. Two were parallel, and one was positioned perpendicular. However, authorities refused to dig up the site based on the unconvincing evidence and the fact that the parking garage was built one year after the Springfield 3 disappeared. Which doesn't mean anything. They could have been buried before the parking structure went up. Right, but if there was an anomaly, wouldn't you want to look into it? I would think so. To close a case? Many other smaller tips and leads have emerged in the nearly three decades since that fateful June night in 1992. But the case is still cold. So what happened? Based on the extremely scarce physical evidence, any theory on what happened can only be pure speculation. It's all circumstantial. There's little we can glean about the events of June 7th, 1992. Whoever abducted the three women did so with laser-sharp precision. The person was definitely and inadvertently helped by an influx of worried friends the following day who contaminated the crime scene, and even so, no physical evidence was left behind. It still is impressive if this was one person to be able to take three individuals, doesn't matter, man or woman, but men or women, but to be able to, without any sort of like mess in the house or in the home. I mean, the neighbors didn't hear a thing. As late as 11.15, Cheryl was painting her drawers. Based on the state of her room, she might have been reading a book when she was interrupted. There were three vehicles parked in the front of the house. Any attacker would think twice before trying to break in, unless they know that all the inhabitants are women, two of them particularly children. I mean, graduated seniors, but children nonetheless but it's still unclear whether this was a spontaneous or a planned and premeditated attack. Did someone notice the two girls driving in the middle of the night and decided to follow them home? The police believed that somebody rang the doorbell and claimed some kind of emergency. For example, a gas leak. This would have easily ushered the women out of the house. So the police think that since there was no evidence of forced entry, this must have been either somebody they knew or somebody that they willingly opened the door on and were convinced to walk outside the house. Yeah, I mean, that would explain why the house is still in pristine condition. Exactly. This doesn't explain why they left all their belongings behind. 
and every pet owner knows that in such a scenario, Cheryl and Susie would not have locked their dog in the bathroom. No, 100%. They would have brought the dog out too. Or another idea, was Cheryl the sole target? The plan had been for her to be alone that night, her daughter at a sleepover. The two girls changed their plan as late as 2 a.m. So when they came into the house, was the attacker already there? If so, they had been oblivious to it for a while because all evidence shows that they were getting ready for bed. Was Cheryl awake, conscious, or even alive at that point? It is clear to a certain extent that the women themselves cooperated even if against their own will. No signs of a struggle, no signs of foul play, no signs of forced entry, no signs of the women. This is a very unsettling case. I mean, there are, it's really, it's and, and you know, given everything that happened the next day and in the hours that happened after Janelle and her boyfriend, you know, messed everything up. Still, though, to have little to no, I mean, this is almost a perfect crime, which we know in, in all these other unsolved cases we've ever covered, there's always been evidence, some evidence, whether it's, you know, uh, a witness or body or bone, you know, uh, remains or things left behind in, in a you know, mess. There's always something that could actually, they could, they could tell the story, but there's absolutely nothing that could tell the story except for what no longer exists, like the broken glass, the message on the answering machine, and the strange phone calls. The strange phone calls. Well, and also the dog locked in the in the bathroom, the purses lined up, like, you have to start putting together, like, why? Why are all these things happening the way that they did happen? You know, you'd probably lock the dog in the bathroom so that it didn't bark as loudly. Or so that it just wasn't in the way of what you were trying to do. Mm-hmm. But why would you line the purses up? What were you trying to accomplish that way? Well, I think it was more that that's just where they left their purses. Like, every woman has a certain spot in the house where they leave their purses. Yeah, but you said they were lined up going at the bottom into, of the stairs. At the bottom of the sh- of the stairs going into Cheryl's room. Yeah. So it sounds like they're either intentionally placed that way or maybe that's just where they dropped them down at. I don't know. I'd be curious, you know, I don't know if back in the 90s, early 90s that you could trace phone calls, phone numbers from like if they could find out where those anonymous prank calls were come coming from. Yeah, I don't know. I I I'm not clear on what protocol and what technology was back then as far as phone tracing goes. I don't think so. I think that the the call has to be active. The phone company can trace back where phone where calls came from. Only if it's active for a certain amount of time. I don't think so. If I the think, line is active. I think the I think the company can trace that this is the number that it came from. It, yeah, it, it possibly. can trace the number. Like they have the record that this number called this number at this time. You just don't know where it came from without an actual uh, bug to track the call, which is why you can't go back and figure out where the call came from except for the number that it came from. Yeah, and maybe they didn't keep phone records long enough for them to 
Who knows? Yeah, I don't know. I'd be curious. All we know is that someone took all three of them in 1992, and nobody has seen them since. Cheryl's sister had Cheryl and Susie declared legally dead in 1997, five years after they disappeared. But Janice refuses to do the same for Stacy. She still holds out hope that her daughter will return. That's heartbreaking. I mean, if I was Stacy's mom, I guess I would work really hard to get the permit to exhume whatever's underneath the parking deck. Like, I would fight until the end to get that, because that could be the answer, at least to where they are or where they ended up. Yeah, I think the authorities' reasoning for not uh, pursuing that is crap, because if the if the parking deck didn't go up until a year after they disappeared, that was a plot of land. <laughs> I mean, that was probably it was probably in construction or being cleared or leveled or graded or whatever during that year prior, and so that's a perfect dumping ground. Exactly, they could have been tossed in and covered with dirt, and then nobody would have known, been the wiser. So I think that's a miss. I think that they they have got to investigate that. But it is it's an unsettling story to basically vanish off the face of the earth with no trace. With some strange uh, suspects that have information, but we don't know what that information is because one one person is saying he won't give it until their mom passes away. Like what is what does that mean? Well, why, w- why wouldn't you, do you not want to give away that maybe you did something really bad uh, for your mom to hear, so you're going to wait until she dies, and then you're going to tell people that you did it? Like, maybe there's, like, some weird guilt there. That's what I, that, 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 that's what I'd lean towards. Robert Fox is the one that claims that he knows exactly what happened, but refuses to reveal it till his mom dies. Do we have any update on where uh, where Mrs. Fox is right now? Has she passed away yet? I do not. I did not I'd research that. I'd be curious if uh, if that's coming up soon. Well, so this story has been covered and profiled in 48 Hours, Cold Case Files, Unsolved Mysteries, and in a slew of popular mainstream missing persons and true crime podcasts and TV shows. So... The story's out there, you know, and next year will be 30 years. 30 years. It sounds like unless somebody just comes out and says, I did it, this is where they are, there's just not enough evidence to be able to continue that. Yeah, at this point, there is no, yeah, the only way that this case can be solved is with a confession. With no physical evidence, that is the only way that the Springfield 3 will get any peace. This episode was written by Jeremy Thompson with discussion from Joey Thompson and Brian McIntyre and was recorded at Starscream Studio. Grayson over at Starscream is an incredible producer and engineer, so be sure to visit starscreamstudio.com for all your tracking and recording needs. Additional audio support by Will Compton and original music composed by Nick McClure. Be sure to subscribe, and when you do, drop a line in the comments and say hi. We want to hear your grim stories, too. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next episode.